0: You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen.
1: Gracious Father in Heaven, how we need your Holy Spirit to be our real teacher. And thank you for everyone here who loves your Word and wants your Word to be guiding in their life and directing their life. We think about the Apostle Paul who gave just everything he could give and in all the midst of his challenges, he wrote these books for us. And so today we want to understand the message. And so we pray that Jesus will be our teacher here. And we thank you for your presence here. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Now I really want you to be able to, to if you have a question, please don't be afraid raise your hand We'll get that question. Maybe it's a comment. Uh, if I get too many, of course, sometimes I might have to shepherd us along because we do want to get through the material. If we can, particularly, I want to get through the first four chapters. Now, we've got six sessions to do that, and so I'm hoping that we can get through all, all six sessions, uh, all six chapters. Um, I haven't done that yet, but... So if you have your Bibles, you will need your Bibles, one form or another. And so if you open them to the book of Galatians, we'll get started. But first of all, I want to... Um, and by the way, I'm not trying to sell books, but uh, if you're interested, the ABC has it. This is a workbook. The reason I wrote these two, I have one on Romans and one on Galatians. And the reason I wrote them is I want people to get into the Word. So it has my notes, but it, and it has the answers in the back. <laughs> Uh, but I want you to be able to get into the Word and wrestle with the Word. It's one thing to listen to somebody, it's another thing to read it and to understand it on your own so that when you talk to somebody you can talk to them and and have confidence. And so that's what I want, that's the reason I've got those two. So the, I, I think they're available at the ABC, in fact I know both of them should be. All right, so to get started Who, we'll just start, and you probably know the answer to this, some of this, but the introduction is important. Uh, The Galatians were Celtics. Now, if if you've got French blood in you and Belgian blood in you and that area, Britain, uh, you probably got some Celtic blood in you. Some people say Celtic, Celtic, however you want to say it. But they had spread out across Europe. And uh, you have the Celtic Wars with the Romans and so forth. But a group of those Celtics actually settled in what we call today Turkey and a place called Galatia. There were four churches connected there. And I don't know if I remember each one of them. Antioch was one of them. Lystria was another one. Derby was another one. There was one more to go with it. So when this letter is written, it's written to all four of those churches. And all four of those churches read that letter. And maybe they discuss it among themselves. They actually were in politically in control. The Galatians continue to be politically in control even when Paul was writing this, even though it was under the Roman Empire. So that's just a little bit of uh, setting a background. Now, these folk also have connections all across Europe. We know that we know the gospel got to Britain very early, long before uh, papal legates showed up there and papal missionaries showed up. The gospel had already been entrenched. In fact, um, who was the great missionary there? Columba. And there was one before him, Saint Patrick. Saint Patrick, by the way, was an early Christian who kept the Sabbath, and also Columbi or Columbi. Uh, he also did the same. He was a disciple of, of Saint Patrick, and they had the gospel early there, and they had been teaching it, and a lot of Britain uh, had been converted to it. So that's just a little bit of um, a, a little bit of background. But Galatians not only had an impact on the early church, it also has an impact uh, bringing us out of the dark ages. In fact, Martin Luther would call this book, he said, I am, I am married to this book. Uh, he loved Galatians, and uh, along with Romans, of course. The, Galatians was written very early in, in Paul's ministry. Romans was written very, at the very end. You can kind of see the difference. Romans is more organized in that sense. But you get things out of Galatians that you don't get in Romans, and, uh, or at least it's not as, as uh, evident there. Now, and I, and I say this with sweet kindness, the Reformers got the basic message of Galatians. They understood the basic message that we're saved by faith. You'll hear me say this sometimes, several times, maybe more than several times, plus nothing. We were saved by faith in Christ, plus nothing. Um, they, they understood that, but what they didn't grasp, and actually I think it's been, been left till now, till the Adventists came along. They did not, and I say this kindly, I'm not, we're not better than anybody else, so I'll underline that, but Revelation understanding as the Puritan pastor watched people head for America from the shores of the Netherlands, he said to them, he was English, but they were coming to America. It wasn't working out in the Netherlands for them. And he said, there is more and more light to burst from the Word of God. And so the, what they didn't get is they did not get the connection of Galatians to the heavenly sanctuary. They didn't grab that. But it's there, and it's very powerfully there, and and we'll get into that, particularly as we get into chapter four. Now, because of the setting that we're in, sometimes it's a little difficult for people to grasp everything that's there. But I don't really think it is if you keep looking at the context. But you may have questions. But Galatians, is, after I did the one on Romans, then I did the one on Galatians. I almost like Galatians better than than the one on Romans, just because there's something about Galatians that Paul is so passionate in Galatians, and, and you will, uh, you'll hear that as we go through. Uh, there have been many convoluted uh, positions or teachings by Christian entities that I want to say are frankly embarrassing. Um. They're embarrassing, and I say this to apologize for my evangelical friends. I mean, they go around sometimes and they say, you know, God's law, His Ten Commandments have been done away with. You don't have to keep the Ten Commandments. And then they say, well, no, nine of them are okay, but there's one of them. That's embarrassing. I mean, come on. Either the Ten Commandments stand together or they don't. You can't cut and divide them. So our evangelical friends do that, and like I said, it's awkward. And our Roman Catholic friends, they just do it different. They say, no, we have the authority. We changed it. Uh, You know, one is disingenuous, and the other one boldly comes and says, we just took God's place. Both of them are wrong. You can never throw the law of God out of the gospel, otherwise you don't have a gospel. You don't need a gospel. Why would you need a gospel? if you don't have a law. If you don't have a law, there's no guilt. And uh, we all have a guilt problem. So we we need Galatians and Romans and the gospel. Really, all Paul is doing is reflecting the gospel that Jesus taught, but maybe more on that uh, uh, later. And, of course, today it's very popular for people to put all world religions in the same basket. Have you seen that a lot? It's uh, I call it ecumenical fantasy. Um, And of course, many religious leaders today, they say, oh, there are many roads to heaven. And if you follow their rituals and their maxims and their rules, they promise to give you eternal life. And we can also add to that the cult of individualism. And that's a big deal today. So people, I run to it all the time, people say, well, you know, I believe a little bit what the Adventists teach, and I believe a little bit what the Baptists teach, and and I I like this part about the Catholic, and I, you know, I'm not going to belong to anything, but I just kind of put it put my thing together. But they don't test it by the Word of God, and that's the bottom line. I uh, I was just texting somebody this morning, and uh, I'd mentioned to them in the texting. That one thing that my father left me which is a wonderful legacy for me was a love for the truth as it is in jesus a love for bible truth that's the greatest legacy you can give to your children and that's what the world is lacking a lot of today and so we want i'm giving you this introduction just so before we actually plunge in into it so at the heart Uh, And the issue that is at the heart of Galatians is the world's brokenness. Now, you you cannot escape this. Our world, we we go around sometimes, we, we say the world is a mess. You ever do that? Another way of saying this is the world is broken. Everybody knows it. Every time you pass a cemetery, you're given the evidence that the world is broken. Every one of us are broken, including me. We've all been broken. Sin has broken us, and we're hurting. The world is hurting. And, I mean, it's almost, I almost don't want to even look at the news anymore. You don't like know who's shooting who anymore kind of a thing. It's, it's craziness. The Spirit of God is being withdrawn from the earth, and that's what's happening. And as the Spirit of God is withdrawn from the earth, you see all these terrible calamities. People say, well, what's happening. Well, I can tell you what's happening. God's Spirit is being withdrawn. People turn their backs on him. Eventually, he lets them have their own way and, and their own go. So at the heart of this whole thing is the brokenness. And why are we broken? We're broken because of morality. Morality, by the way, is a big deal today. It's, we're ha- in our culture today, we're having huge arguments about what's right and what's wrong. You know, and I'm not trying to play politics here, but just give you a quick example. You know, the, uh, I saw a picture of somebody the other day uh, had tied themselves to some kind of a something, and the world will end in 1,200 and so many days if we don't change the climate. That's To them, if you don't go along with them, you're, you're immoral. That's how, it's not a matter of opinion. It's morality. And if you're immoral... They want to eliminate you. That sound like Revelation 13? And I, I, you could go on and on. You can, you can get into the whole um, uh, sexual breakdown, morality breakdown in America. Same thing. What? You don't call me by my selected gender? I'm not trying to make fun of anybody here. I'm just simply saying for them it's a moral issue. And so everything has gotten to be more... So we're, get, we're going to get into this whole morality because that's exactly what the gospel speaks to. The, the book of Galatians is not irrelevant. It's very relevant for our, our world uh, today. Now, I mentioned earlier that Galatians puts the... the um, the earthly sanctuary with its symbols, its laws, its types and its proper place. I I know I just read that off my notes, but I won't say that again. Galatians gets the earthly sanctuary with its types and its symbols. It gets it in the proper place. Unflinchingly, it affirms the truth that the earthly sanctuary with its law, laws, must give way to the reality of Jesus Christ. Now that's, that's the heart of everything here. Jesus, who reigns in our hearts and intercedes for us as our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. And I want to say this, and I say it, I wish I could underline it a thousand times. This is the source of Christian power. And the early church, the early church understood this. They understood that this living Christ, who's in the heavenly sanctuary, was also living in their heart. He was the essence of the gospel, and he was a reality. He wasn't a theory, per se. Nothing wrong with theory. You need the right truth, but he was a reality. So, finally, before we get into the text itself, the heavenly sanctuary and the high priestly ministry of Jesus is... The context of the gospel. I can make the Bible say anything I want it to say if I take it out of context. And you can too. So the gospel does have a context. And that context is the heavenly sanctuary. Cannot escape that out of the New Testament. Um, and so Galatians make sure that we have that. And and let me say this, without that guiding context of the heavenly sanctuary, the gospel will be distorted. And I say this again, again kindly to our our Roman our Roman friends, what they have done is created an earthly sanctuary with an earthly priesthood, and so therefore it's out of the context. The law of God's out of the context. Our, our evangelical friends and Protestant friends don't really know much about what's going on there, so they don't have a context to understand the gospel. If you don't have the context, it will be distorted. By the way, even in Adventism, there are some distortions, and I'll probably speak to some of those. And some of them are pretty prevalent in some places. Now, I want to say something else. You should test everybody. I don't don't care how charismatic those preachers are, and I'm one of them, not necessarily charismatic, but I'm just a fellow traveler. You As Adventists, we need to make sure that it's not snap, crackle, and pop that we enjoy. You test people by the Word of God. Test your ministers by the Word. Test your elders. Test your Sabbath school teachers. How does this fit with Scripture? That's what made Adventists very strong. We live in a world of religious entertainment and Adventists are no different. We like it too sometimes, you know. And I'm not being critical, I'm just saying, it's easy to get pulled into that kind of a thing and, and just say, oh, that's so wonderful, without checking to see if that is solid scriptural truth. You with me on that? So, so you, you know, as we go through this, I want you to always have that uh, in your mind here. All right, let's, uh, let's go to the first chapter of Galatians. And uh, we're going to look at verse 1. And Paul makes a very important claim here. One of his things for the, uh, the Galatians is because he wants them to understand that he's genuinely an apostle. Now, we could say he's the 13th apostle. Uh, and we're gonna, we're gonna say, he's gonna give the arguments of why he's authentic when he gives the Gospel of Galatians. And it's important to have that authentic, uh, thing. So, in verse one, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So, who does Paul say he has been commissioned by to be equal to one of the apostles? Who does, yeah, Christ himself and the Father. So he says, I, I'm not basically... Now, he's going to really bore in on this uh, as, we, as we go along. So we're going to find that the Apostle Paul does something, and we'll get into that in chapter 2. Probably won't get through that today. But uh, in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul corrects none other than the Apostle Peter. And if he had not corrected Peter... The gospel would have been upended for all of us, and you have to say you have to give Paul some credit. It takes some intestinal fortitude to stand up to a charismatic person like Peter to his face and basically say, "Peter, you're wrong." I'll talk more about that later. But so he certainly uh, exhibits uh, this whole whole issue. I'm not going to go through every last verse, although I would be tempted to do to do that, but we'll go through uh, quite a bit of it. Uh, let's look at verse 4 here. And um, verse 4. I'll start with verse 3. Grace to you and peace. So he wants them to have grace and peace. By the way, grace is such a beautiful word. We'll talk more about that. Grace and peace, they go together from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Notice two things that Jesus does here in verse 4 who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us. There's the second one. First, he gives himself for our sins, and then he does what? After he gives himself for our sins. Delivers us. I want to say hallelujah because it's not just theory. It's a real deliverance. And what are we delivered from according to the text? This is a class. What? Yeah, this evil world or this present evil age or this evil age. By the way, do any of us live in an evil age It gets worse every used to say, you know, it gets worse every year, now it gets worse about every day, about every month. I I love what he says. If you leave your finger here just for fun, we'll flip over to Colossians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, little books in there. And there's a a chapter one, and I love this verse thirteen. Just goes along with this. He has delivered us. From the power of darkness, and this next part I really love, and convey and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Isn't that great? And conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Wow. So he's delivered us from this present evil age, and we are we are blessed for that. Now when we look at verse 7. Uh, Verse 6, let's look at 6 and 7. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace to a different gospel. Why is Paul so amazed here? He's kind of shocked. What what happened? Have you ever seen anybody embrace the gospel and then turn away from it and embrace something else? And he says, "I'm, I'm, I'm amazed how quickly this happened. And he's amazed because these are pagan people. These are not Jewish people. These are people, if you know anything about the Celtic religions in the background, uh, if you've got any Celtic blood in you, which I do, uh, your ancestors were running around unclothed in the woods, um, worshiping idols and doing all kinds of evil things, including human sacrifice. Pretty awful stuff. Aren't you glad to be delivered? I'm glad to be delivered. I I praise God for the gospel and what it's done and means to each of us. Um, So uh, going back now to verse verse, uh, 6, he talks about a different gospel, but notice verse 7, which is not another. Now he's going to double, triple down on this. He's going to say there is no such thing as another gospel there's only one and there's a reason why there's only one gospel which is not another but there are some who trouble you who want to pervert or distort the gospel of christ so we should not be surprised that we have even among us and by the way i want to make sure don't misunderstand something the gospel that's taught by the Adventist church and those 28 fundamental beliefs, it's true. It's good. It's solid. But that doesn't mean that there are not some, both outside and inside, that embrace a different gospel. And, uh, and some of them are pretty popular. Pretty popular sometimes. But Paul is very clear here that there is not another one. Now, Verse 8, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached, let him be what? That's that's strong language. And just in case you didn't get it, he'll say it again in so many words. He said, "So, so why do you think? Why do you think that he's saying that if somebody preaches a different gospel, that they should be anathema, cursed, shut out from heaven? Why, why, would he, why would he make that kind of a statement? And why is he saying so insistent that you can't not have a smorgasbord gospel? You can only have one. All right, some of you are raising your hand trying to respond to me, and that's good. Um, Let me just bore in why. The gospel is given to Paul by none other than Jesus himself. Follow me? And we'll get more of that in a few moments. The gospel reflects Jesus himself. If you change the in order to get a changed gospel you have to change Jesus. And he says I am the same yesterday, today and forever. The other thing is the gospel is perfect. And you cannot improve perfect unless you mess it up. And then it's not improved. Understand? So there's some things that you can't mess with. And the gospel of Jesus is one of those. So Jesus is unchangeable. The gospel is unchangeable because Jesus is unchangeable. And the gospel is unchangeable because the gospel is perfect. And an imperfect gospel can deliver no one. Now that gets to be pretty important, isn't it? By the way, if you were out in some... Uh, disastrous situation. Let's say you got caught in a flood and there's a river and you're caught in the middle of the river and you're hoping one of those helicopters will come in and they come in and they're ready to deliver you, but the equipment they have doesn't work. Pretty serious. Listen, you and I both want to walk the streets of gold. Amen. That's why we're here. And I want the true gospel because it's the only way I can be delivered ultimately, both presently and ultimately, from this present evil age. So that's why Paul will not take any prisoners here. He says, no, you cannot change the gospel. And if you do, you are cursed. By the way, because if if you're cursed because you're telling people and offering them something that can't deliver them, does that make sense? You don't want to do that. If you offer somebody something, you want it to work. If you give me some medicine, if I'm sick, I really want it to work. And so that's what, what this, is, this is about. So um, let's, let's go on. Uh, I really explained verse 8. Verse 8 says, you know, if an angel preaches it or I preach it, let him be accursed. Because you can't change it. Not even the angels of God can change it because Jesus is unchangeable. Um, yeah, let me just make another comment about this unchangeable gospel for a moment. I know that this flies in the face of the world we live in, and you, you understand that. In our postmodern age, many people don't believe there's such a thing as absolute truth. For them, truth is, truth is whatever somebody wants it to believe. Have you ever had anybody say, well, that's your truth, but here's my truth? That's an oxymoron. Can't be both ways. You can't have two versions of truth because then they're conflicting. Now, that doesn't mean there's not unknown issues and you have a different opinion about different things. That's, that is true. But I'm talking about truth, vital truth. Truth is the truth. And who was it that gave this um, illustration? It was C.D. Brooks. Uh, he's sleeping waiting for Jesus to come but I'm going to throw this little one in there because it was so good. I just didn't want to... I just need to throw it in there. It's not in the book anyway. But you probably heard it. He said... um, uh, One time there was... uh, Truth was on his... I don't know if I get it just right, but I get the gist of it. Truth was on a a journey, and uh, it was a hot day, and so Truth found a a river, um, and so he took off his clothes, hung them on the bush, and he went swimming, and in the course, this is a parable, by the way, and on the way, how many of you heard this one? Uh, okay, a few of you, most, many, most of you have not. Um, so those of you who heard it, uh, I'll, do re- I'll do apologies to C.D. Brooks from me. <laughs> um, but uh, at, at any rate, along came uh, Error, and Error saw truce clothes there, and and so he he went over and he changed out. So he put his clothes there and took truth's clothes. And he went into the town saying, I'm the truth, I'm the truth, I'm the truth. And when, when uh, the truth got out of the swim, he looked and he saw what had happened. And he said, I am for sure not going to put errors clothes on. And he went running into town without them, and that's why it's called the Naked Truth. (laughs) That's C.D. Brooks. The Naked Truth. The truth is we want the Naked Truth, do we not? Unvarnished. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So, you know, it goes without saying that one of the things that Satan does in order to pervert the gospel is attack people like me, ministers, and get us go down a wrong road. That's why you have to test us. All right, let's take, a, let's take a, um, a look at verses 11 and 12. If you have questions or comments, raise your hand. I've got the mic up here, and we'll get that mic to you here as we go. All right, let's look at verses 11 and 12. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it, from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, this is where Paul begins to put himself on the same equality as the rest of the apostles. He says, "I didn't even get this from the other apostles; I was not taught by them." He says, "I was taught directly by Jesus Himself." And then, in verse thirteen, he says, "For you've heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God and tried to, beyond measure, tried to destroy it." I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries of my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the tradition of my fathers. Why was Paul so anti-Gospel to start with? Why was he so anti-Jesus and the early Christians? I don't want you to miss this point. He ran amok up what he thought was right. That's true, but the answer's in the text. Okay, let's, let me get the mic here. Some of these dear folk are trying to answer. So, uh, Gerard, could I get you to uh, pass the mic here for us? Yeah, could you? Thank you kindly. Of, this lady has an answer, and there's one there in the back, and I've just asked that question. because I, I, So what? What? why was he so? Okay, go right ahead.
0: Well, it says that um, he received a, basically he received his truth from the traditions of men. He put more stock in the traditions that he had been taught than in the
1: Word of God. You're very close. Very close. Okay, there's another answer back there. It's in the text. The answer's in the text. And she's close. Not a bad answer. But I'm after something. Simply,
0: uh, he did not receive it from man.
1: That's true. He did not receive the gospel from man. But my question is, is, why is he so... Anti the early church, and the key is the word zealous. He was zealous for what? He's very clear, and she was very close in her answer, for the traditions of his fathers. So now I want to ask the question for all of us. By the way, my parents became Seventh-day Adventist when I was six years old. Some of you are third or fourth or fifth generation Seventh-day Adventist, but your genealogy will not save you. It will not. Maybe a blessing won't save you. You need to make sure there was a point in my life when I had to embrace the Scripture, embrace the Savior, and embrace it on my own and understand it for myself. And then that's when it became powerful for me. So there are many people that love their mommy and their daddy and their grandpappies and their grandmamas and all of that kind of stuff and I've been a whatever forever so the real question is do you have this living Christ living in you so people you're at the mark of the beast people are going to be angry because of Revelation chapter 13 verse 12 here are the patience of the saints who keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. And they said, well, that doesn't fit our traditions. And, and, and we've, uh, we've gone down a road that where tradition was laid aside, and we've got it back now, and you people are... And it's going to be anger, a lot of anger. I've been on whatever ever since... And it's, it's human nature. I want to be zealous for the truth as it is in Jesus Paul's mind was so closed that the only way that God could get his attention was on the road of Damascus. Have you ever had a child that you couldn't get their attention until you swatted them on the seat of the pants? I know that's not popular, but it's all right to do. Appropriate way, of course. Sometimes you can't get their attention until you... That's what God had to do with Paul. Um... Okay, let's let's go on. Just didn't want to didn't want to miss miss that. Now he said, "I'm separated by the grace of God from my mother's womb to reveal His son, verse 16, to reveal His Son in me. I love that that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. I did not. Here he is again. I did not immediately confirm confer with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went." to Arabia. I'm looking at verse 17, and returned again to Damascus. So he has this vision. We all know the story of the Damascus Road. He goes to Arabia. How long he stays in Arabia, we do not know. I think it's the Arabian Desert that he's talking about. And then he comes back to Damascus, and then the next verse says something very insightful. Verse 18, then after how many years? Let me ask you a question. What was the length of the ministry of Jesus? Three and a half years. And all of those disciples weren't necessarily with him every moment of that three and a half Paul is discipled by Jesus himself for how long? Three years. He gets the same tutoring in a different context as the apostles had. And it's only then... 14 years later that he actually goes to Jerusalem to confer with the Apostles and uh, check out to see things. And, and, and that's an important part too and we'll, we, and we'll, uh, we'll get to that. Let's, uh, let me just skip down here keep me uh, on track here. So let's, let's look at um, verse 18. You're still with me. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him for fifteen days but I saw none other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So he's, he's going up, he's talking to them after those three years of being with Jesus in the Arabian desert, maybe part of that in Damascus. Now concerning the things which I write to you, verse 20, indeed before God I do not lie. Verse 21, afterward I went to the regions of Syria and Sicilia, I don't think I said that right, Cilicia? Cilicia? Yeah, that's correct. That's better. And I was unknown by faith to the churches of Judea which were in Christ. But they were hearing only, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. So what Paul is doing is he's building back to the Galatians, even though he was the evangelist, even though he converted them, even though the Holy Spirit fell on them, even though they were delivered from all this paganism and had embraced Christ, now they are being confronted by Christian Judaizers. Christian. Christian. Judaizers, who are undoing what the Apostle Paul had done. And they're saying, but we are authentic, and we'll talk about who these people are in just a moment. We're authentic. And he is giving his own credentials here. Um, And so he's basically unknown in Jerusalem except to Peter and to James, not even the churches. He didn't preach in the churches of Judea. He left the And then he comes back 14 years later, verse 2, verse 1 of chapter 2. Still with me? Any questions? All right. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation. What does that tell you? He goes because the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus, told him, I want you now to go. You've been out here preaching and teaching and being a missionary for 14 years, and I want you to go to Jerusalem, and I want you to check with the brethren to make sure that all of you are on linked together, that you're together. By the way, that's why you have church organization. That's why it's important to have it. So I went up by revelation and communicated to them that the gospel which I preached to the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, verse 2, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Question and answer. If you come across something that that you think is true, why is it good to check with other people and what kind of people should you check with? You, You gave a good answer right there. Those who have a good reputation in the gospel, right? Known for teaching correctly, biblically, and not just one. He goes and talks to all of them, appears at least most of them at this point. I lost my place. No, there we are. Now, verse 3 is really interesting. Yet, not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to. To be circumcised. Now, that little tidbit tells us a lot about the apostles, and I have to change my computer just real quick here to the uh, second lesson here because I'm on the second lesson. So just give me just a moment to do this. Because it's got something here. We're going to talk about uh, uh, circumcision here again. Now, I think one of the never-ending plagues of the Christian church are false people who come in and disrupt. It's, it, it's not a matter of if it's going to happen. It will happen. But again, your only safety is really testing uh, people by the Word of God. But I want to get down to this thing on, on Titus. Let me scroll down here just for a moment. Uh, the reason this is an important um, piece of evidence is that Titus was a minister of the gospel Titus was being sent out to raise up churches. Titus was out baptizing people. Titus was out ordaining people. And Titus is uncircumcised. So if circumcision had been so important, the apostles, in the presence of the apostles, they would have insisted that Titus be circumcised. They would have said, Paul, you are a good man. You've been out here doing all this, but we cannot have this. We have to have this preacher of yours that you've trained. He has to be circumcised. I know he's Greek, but he's got to be circumcised. Never happened. And that is evidence that the gospel is not faith in Jesus plus something else. It's also evidence that the apostles were all on the same platform that the apostles were all together on this, because if this, had been, if, if this had not been true, they would have insisted that he be circumcised. Any questions? Comments on that? All right. Well, I, I want to I continue on here. Now, look at verse 4, verse 4 of chapter 2, and this occurred because a false brethren secretly brought in and this is a very interesting verse. Who came in by stealth. Now, stealth is a, uh, is a word we're all familiar with because nowadays we have stealth airplanes and stealth this and stealth that. Came in by stealth. Now, what does that... T- if they came in by stealth, what does that tell you? No, they did not show up and say, I'm a false brother. <laughs> they came in, yeah... Genuine. I, no, we're true Christians. We, really, we love Jesus. Jesus is very important to us. We really love him, and we are really genuine brethren. But we have to tell you, Galatians, the Apostle Paul is a very fine person, but we have to tell you that he left something out. Now, if you are to be justified, and that word justified is a big word, and we're going to get into that word. You want that word justified, applied to your life. If you're going to be justified, Galatians, you really have to add something else. There's something else that's really, really important. And the reason we know that, and you've got to remember, Galatians, that Israel goes way back. We go back to Moses. We go back to Abraham. And um, this is something given to us by God himself. Question and answer. Was that true? Yes, it was true. You're absolutely right. It's true. It's given to us by God. It doesn't change. So if you are going to be justified, you must be circumcised. That wasn't unusual for Jewish people to say that because if you wanted to become a Jew... By the way, the Jews, or even Jesus said, you go all over the world and make a convert. He's the worse devil when you get done with him than he was before you touched him. But in order to become a Jew, you had to be circumcised. So circumcision is a big deal for the Jewish people. Now, I'm going to be kind to these false brethren, and I'm going to tell you who I think they are. They are Pharisees that were converted. They had not given up their Phariseeism they believed in Jesus as the Messiah earnestly, but it, they believed in Jesus the Messiah plus the rituals of the temple that were still going on. Uh, You've got to remember, the temple is still there today. They're still offering the sacrifices and all those kinds of... Listen, these people grew up believing. This was the way of salvation. And I'm going to talk more about, as we get into this, how the Jewish people actually perverted this whole thing. And that perversion uh, is still going on around us. By the way, Satan's tools, um, he never changes. He just keeps repackaging it. And so he says they came in by stealth, and, and they were there to take away our liberty. So what is Christian liberty? That's an important question. Don't you want liberty? Don't we all like liberty? Do you like liberty of the United States of America? Yes, we do. A lot of people like to come here because it's free. I was just watching or seeing somebody the other day. It's not going to be free. Not careful. All right, in this context, Christian liberty, in this context, Christian liberty means freedom from observing Jewish temple rituals. Now, if you're listening to what I'm saying right now, and I know that you are, you can see how this whole sanctuary business is going to get really involved in this thing and, and how the heavenly sanctuary is going to get involved in it. So let me go back to this. Still, you still with me? Okay. All right. In this context, Christian liberty means freedom from observing Jewish temple rituals or performing any human works as a means of justification. I'm going to read this because I don't want to to get lost on this one. But let's take a look at circumcision. Um, This is a delicate subject, so I think I'm going to stick to my written thing here. But I think you'll get it. Let's take a look at circumcision. This was considered the real sign of being Jewish. Jewish converts were circumcised. Jewish parents, without fail, would have their sons circumcised on the eighth day after the birth. Otherwise, one was not considered Jewish. Circumcision originated with God when He told Abraham to circumcise every male of his household. Requiring Abraham and his family to be circumcised God was giving His descendants a constant reminder of the Gospel. Like Abraham, the Jews could only succeed by putting their absolute faith in God. Now we say that off the top of our lips, but at the bottom line, the crucial thing is our faith. This faith in God is the foundation of the gospel. Unlike the rest of the world, the Jews would be a people who trusted their God supremely. Think of the three worthy Hebrews, the fiery furnace. However, practicing and practicing Abraham's faith, their natural hearts like his would need to be cut off from the selfishness, and faithlessness. It was Moses who later said to the men of Israel, therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer, Deuteronomy 10.16. In other words, the symbol, Moses was saying, will not save you if you exhibit a stubborn lack of trust in God. The circumcision of their stiff-necked Nature was necessary to reveal in them God's life-giving power. By the way, is Christ in you life-giving? One may ask why God chose the male reproductive organ for this symbol. Even though it was the fountain of physical life for the next generation, it was covered by a foreskin. When the foreskin was cut off or circumcised, this organ of life was then uncovered or revealed. As leader of his home, the husband was to be the fountain of life by giving spiritual leadership to the next generation. Just as he gave physical life to his children, so he was to give them spiritual life. Only if his faithfulness was removed, I'm sorry, only if his faithlessness, his lack of faith, was removed, could he impart spiritual life to his children. I'm going to stop there. If you give them physical life, how important is it to give them spiritual life? They will not have life unless you give them spiritual life. The physical life will come to an end. You can give them physical life temporarily, but the only way to give them life is to give them spiritual life. Our sinful, selfish nature, which we inherited from our ancestors, is a big problem. It restricts or covers our natural desire to have faith in God. Cross-reference Romans 7, 18-20. Our natural selfishness wars against our natural goodness or our trust in God. When Christ came as a human, I know this gets into it, and it'll be a good place to stop in in just a few moments, and then tomorrow we'll get into this. When Christ came as a human, He took our carnal, selfish nature to Calvary's cross. By dying our death for us, he cut off or circumcised the selfish nature of the human race because we are all in Christ. You understand what I mean by this? We'll get more into substitution later. But when Jesus does this because he created us, he's come to that second Adam, and when he cuts this off at Calvary's cross, when he dies, his human nature dies, he's cut off. This carnal, which is another word for selfish nature. you glad about that? I am glad about it. Jesus, yet Jesus never sinned by yielding to the temptation of our human carnal nature. Aren't you glad about that? So when Jesus was resurrected, the old carnal nature was cut off at Calvary and forever gone. I want to say hallelujah. If we put our faith in Him, our life, notice the connecting link, faith in Him, our life will be united to His life. When we repent of our sins and are justified by His grace, something wonderful happens to us. By means of the Holy Spirit and His mighty power, God will spiritually cut off our, self, our selfish nature. In other words, He takes it out of control. While it will still be present, it has been put out of the business of ruling our lives. It is spiritually dead. The death of the spiritual, selfish nature and the resurrection of the spiritual nature has profound results in our lives. Still with me? Haven't lost you? Okay. The ritual... I'm sorry. This change in our heart by the Spirit of God is the guarantee that when we literally die, we will come back to life on the morning of the resurrection. Since by faith we are now united with Him, we will also share in His resurrection then. That means that our symbolic foreskin, our selfish nature, will be left in the grave. Hallelujah. With our sins forgiven and our selfish nature no longer covering us, We will be gloriously revealed with Him to the universe. And you can cross-reference Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 19, where it says that the sons of God are gloriously revealed in Christ. Sons there, including, of course, the daughters as well. Last paragraph, and then we'll be finished. The ritual of circumcision had become ingrained in Jewish thinking, but its meaning had been changed. In Jesus' day, it was the sure symbol of Jewish nationalism, along with the arrogant boasting that went with it. No longer was it a symbol of a person's faith. That was the reason the church met at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. This council set the church on a scriptural foundation of justification in Christ, by faith alone, any other position would have destroyed the gospel and the church in its infancy. That's why the circumcision is a big deal, and that's why Paul brings it out. Say, so Some people may say, well, what?" A, I, I know I'm out of time, but I'm stealing a minute, half a minute. So uh, the the women were not affected by that. Oh, yes, they were, because every Jewish woman who received a Jewish husband that had been circumcised acknowledged the fact that together they were going to give life to the next generation, spiritual life as well as physical life. And that's what this was all about, faith in Christ alone. By the way... I'm going to close with this. The five great Protestant things as evidence we should embrace them. We're justified or saved through Scripture alone. That is not excluded, the spirit of prophecy, because it's supported by Scripture. We are saved by faith alone. We are saved by grace alone. We are saved by Christ alone, and we are saved to the glory of God alone. And when we have those alone, we become new creatures. And as Paul would say in Romans chapter three, verse 31, "The law of God is then established in our hearts." Yes, ma'am. When
0: you were talking um, about how the women are included in the whole circumcision thing um, uh, as giving life, my children's father never came to an understanding. And so their spiritual um, education came through me. And, and God honors that. Yes. And, and, um, and my children, all of them, uh, not to my honor or glory, but to honor and glory of Jesus Christ, all made a decision for God. And so Amen. he honors that mother's faith, even if there isn't a, a priest in the home, if there's that praying mother yes. who is offering up those children yes. and, and, and putting herself um, uh, uh, in the Lord, then he takes over that that place in the family for that mother or wife who doesn't have the husband who's supposed to be doing a, 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 a role of, of yeah. the priest
1: yeah thank you so much for that and you're bringing us forward the apostle paul had the same challenges in the new in the early christian church and he says if one of you are in christ the children are sanctified that's what he said but, of course, what we've been talking about is this whole, the reason for this circumcision and why God gave it to start with. It was always to be a symbol of their faith in God supremely and to pass that on to the next generation. That was the hope. That was the reason for the symbol. Well, we're out of time. Tomorrow we're going to get plunging more into chapter 2. Let me tell you, this is going to get better and better and better. We're going to get into chapter 3. We're going to get into Hagar. and Not in chapter 3. Tomorrow we're going to get into... Yeah, chapter 3 is fantastic. I think we'll get a good ways into chapter 3. Chapter 4 gets into Hagar and and Sarah and all of those. It's, it's It's a wonderful thing. Anyway, thank you for being here. Let's bow our heads for closing prayer. Gracious Father, thank you for this time we can spend together understanding what you're doing for us. And to understand, Heavenly Father, the issues, the big issues, not only in the early Christian church, But issues similar nature may be in a different package that we all face today. May we leave here today and every day determined to put our faith in Christ alone. In Jesus' name, amen. To
0: listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 22 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.